1: Good day, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Profound Medical Second Quarter 2021 Financial Results Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question-and-answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star, then zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Stephen Kilmer, Investor Relations, please go ahead.
2: Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Let me start by pointing out that this conference call will include forward looking statements regarding Profound and its business, which may include, but is not limited to, expectations regarding the efficacy of Profound's technology in the treatment of prostate cancer, BPH uterine fibroids, palliative pain, and osteoid osteoma. Often, but not always, forward-looking statements can be identified by the use of words such as plans, is expected, expects, scheduled, intends, contemplates, anticipates, believes, proposes, or variations, including negative variations of such words and phrases, or state that certain actions, events, or results may, could, would, might, or will be taken, occur, or be achieved. Such statements are based on the current expectations of management. The forward-looking events and circumstances discussed in this conference call may not occur by certain specified dates or at all, and could differ materially as a result of known and unknown risk factors and uncertainties affecting the company, including risks regarding the medical device industry, economic factors, the equity markets generally, and risks associated with growth and competition. Although profound has attempted to identify important factors that could cause actual actions, events, or results to differ materially from those described in forward-looking statements, there may be other factors that cause actions, events, or results to differ from those anticipated, estimated, or intended. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, except as required by applicable securities laws. Forward-looking statements speak only as of the date on which they are made, and profound undertakes no obligation to publicly update or revise any forward-looking statement whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise, other than as required by law. For the benefit of those who are new to the Profound story, I would like to take a moment to summarize our business. Profound develops and markets customizable incision-free therapies for the ablation of disease tissue. We are currently commercializing Tulsa Pro, a technology that combines real-time MRI, robotically-driven transurethral ultrasound, and closed-loop temperature feedback control. The technology is designed to provide customizable and predictable radiation-free ablation of a surgeon-defined prostate volume while actively protecting the urethra and rectum to help preserve the patient's natural functional abilities. Tulsa Pro is CE-marked, Health Canada approved, and 510K cleared by the FDA. We are also commercializing Sonaleaf, an innovative therapeutic platform that is CE-marked for the treatment of uterine fibroids and palliative pain treatment of bone metastasis. Finally, it has also been approved by the China National Medical Products Administration for the non-invasive treatment of uterine fibroids and has recently obtained FDA approval under our humanitarian device exemption for the treatment of the osteoid osteoma. While we do not expect this FDA HDE approval to have a material impact on revenues in the near term, it is a significant milestone for our company and we are making preparations for its U.S. commercial launch later in 2021. On the call today, representing the company, are Dr. Arun Menawat, Profound's Chief Executive Officer, and Aaron Davidson, the company's Senior Vice President of Corporate Development. With that said, I'll now turn the call over to Aaron.
3: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our second quarter 2021 conference call. On behalf of the management team and everyone at Profound, I would like to thank you for your ongoing interest in our company. For those of you who are shareholders, we appreciate your continued interest and support. I will turn the call over to Arun in a moment for an update on our commercial activities. However, before I do, I'd like to provide a brief update on our second quarter 2021 financial results. As a reminder, we have changed our presentation currency from the Canadian to the US dollar. To streamline things, all of the numbers we refer to have been rounded, so are approximate. For the three-month period ended June 30th, 2021, the company recorded revenue of $2.6 million, up 156% from $1 million in the second quarter of 2020. As we mentioned in today's press release, the U.S. Tulsa Pro business rebound that started in March continued through the second quarter, driving a 145% sequential increase in recurring revenue. Total operating expenses in the 2021 second quarter which consists of R&D, G&A, and selling and distribution expenses were $7.6 million, an increase of 74% compared with approximately $4.4 million in the second quarter of 2020. Breaking that down further, expenditures for R&D increased 99% on a year-over-year basis to $3.4 million. This was primarily driven by increased new and existing clinical trials, increased spending for R&D initiatives and projects, travel restrictions being removed, options awarded to employees, additional headcount, and overall increases to general expenses, partially offset by decreased consulting fees. GNA expenses increased by 49% to $2.5 million due to additional headcount, increased salaries and director's fees, higher NASDAQ and TSX listings fees, increased legal and accounting fees, and options awarded to employees. Finally, selling and distribution expenses increased by 74% to approximately $1.7 million. Overall, the company recorded a second quarter 2021 net loss of $7 million, or 35 cents per common share, compared with a net loss of $5.3 million, or 33 cents per common share, for the same three-month period in 2020. As at June 30th, 2021, Profound had cash of $73.8 million. With that, I'll now turn the call over to Arun.
4: Thanks, Aaron. As many of you know, COVID-19's negative impact in the beginning of 2021 was severe not only for Profound, but across the U.S. medtech space. That was followed by a late March rebound, which as Aaron mentioned, continued through the second quarter. On our last call, I focused my remarks on explaining why the disruption in Q1 had not translated into our being any less bullish on our business. On this call, I would like to reiterate that. In fact, in a few minutes, I will share with you some real world utilization data that I believe really serves to underscore the tremendous opportunity that Tulsa represents. But first, let me update you on our continuing progress in laying the groundwork to drive adoption of Tulsa Pro in the United States. The first pillar of that is building a high-quality U.S. install base targeting three major types of end users, early adopters, independent imaging center companies, and opinion-leading teaching hospitals. Each of these are expected to play different roles in supporting both short-term and long-term adoption. Our early adopter TELSA Pro sites have continued to treat a growing number and an increasing variety of patients. With respect to the imaging center companies, RedNet's Liberty Pacific West Hills Center in Los Angeles is treating patients using Tulsa after initially experiencing delays related to COVID-19. Midway through Q2, we also announced a U.S. multi-center TELSA Pro agreement with Acumen, which currently has 79 operating clinics in Florida and a total of 134 sites across its network in seven states. We expect to install TELSA Pro systems at up to 10 Acumen Men's Health Centers across Florida, Texas, and Pennsylvania over the next year or so with the first site anticipated to be operational in the fourth quarter of 2021. Based upon the success of the first 10 installations, we hope to expand our relationship in the future to include additional acumen centers. Moving to the third type of end user, as I highlighted in our last call, we now have agreements with renowned institutions like UCLA, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, Yale Cancer Center, WellSpan Advanced Prostate Cancer Center, Mayo Jacksonville and Mayo Rochester, NGH Cancer Center, UT Southwestern, Memorial Herman, and Methodist South Antonio. That list continues to grow nicely. In fact, I'm pleased to report that in Q2, our team signed six additional new agreements with hospitals for installations later this year. The price point of all agreements remains the same at $7,710 or higher per patient. To summarize the install base status of Tulsa in the United States, today we have about 14 installs and 10 of those sites were treating patients in Q2. Plus, we have enough contracts on hand for over 20 new installs over the next 12 months. Based upon that, we continue to anticipate approximately 25 installed Telsapro systems in the United States by the end of this year. As we saw previously, during initial limited commercial launch of Tulsa in Europe. As US physicians are becoming more confident with and accustomed to the technology, they are using it in a wide range of patients. We believe this confirms Tulsa Pro's flexibility and suggests that the available market is as large, if not larger than what we first envisioned. Based on a utilization analysis, our confidence is growing that Tulsa will be adopted as a mainstream technology, rather than a highly specialized tool that can only be used in a small subset of patients. Let me share some of the raw patient characteristic data with you. All of this comes from the US. Tulsa sites, composed of all three end user types, that actively treated patients in the first half of 2021. 86% of patients received ablations of greater than 50% of the prostate. 63% received whole gland, 28% partial gland, 6% BPH only, and 1% solvage. As an aside, and as some of you know, I personally make up part of that BPH group, having successfully undergone TALSA a few weeks ago. Of the prostate cancer patients treated, 11% were grade group 1, or low risk, 53% were grade group 2, or in low intermediate risk, 28% were grade group 3, or high intermediate risk, and 8% were grade group four to five, which is considered high or very high risk. With respect to the size of prostates treated, 75% were greater than or equal to 33 cc, and many were greater than 100 cc. To put that in perspective, especially with respect to Tulsa's relative ability, to become a mainstream treatment, the vast majority of prostate cancer patients, and pretty much all prostates of BPH patients are greater than 30 cc. Summarizing, the analysis shows that Tulsa was used in all grades of cancer, ranging from low risk to the highest risk patients. And the percentages of patients treated in those risk categories roughly corresponded with that what we see in the real world with respect to patient population distribution. In addition, recent publication on critical outcomes of patients who have been treated in real world setting continue to show that TELSA patients experience Minimal side effects, such as urinary incontinence, or severe erectile dysfunction. Coupling the two, we have increasing confidence that of all the emerging technologies for prostate disease, TELSA is the most flexible. It can be used in the widest variety of prostate disease for customized whole or partial gland treatment with demonstrated superior outcomes. In order to maximize the opportunity that we see ahead of us, there's no question that the successful execution of our reimbursement strategy will be key. To that end, as I mentioned in our last call, we have initiated dialogue with relevant societies, including the American Urological Society and the American College of Radiology to get initial feedback on the requirements to qualify for our CPT1 application. Based upon their feedback, we continue to believe that the clinical publications on the TELSA procedure and the publications that we anticipate later this year will likely be sufficient to meet the requirements for the application by the end of this year. If the adoption of TELSA usage continues to increase as we anticipate, we may get the support that we need to file in 2022. Our strategy is to not only continue to pursue the CPT-1 application with the combination of clinical data that already exists, and that will likely be published by end of this year, but also support a planned level one study called CAPTIM that will run in parallel with the filing of the CPT1 application. While the CAPTIM study is not a requirement to obtain the code, it may further support coverage by insurance payers and will also provide additional clinical data to support significant adoption. The planned CAPTAIN trial will enroll 201 prostate cancer patients across approximately 10 to 12 sites. Patients will be randomized two to one to receive the Tulsa procedure or a radical prostatectomy. The primary endpoints will include safety and efficacy, including measurements of side effects and non-inferior progression-free survival over time. This trial will primarily be run in the United States and we continue to anticipate patient recruitment to begin before the end of this year. In the meantime, TAC 2.0 continues to progress well and we anticipate that patient recruitment will be completed by the end of this year. We also anticipate that three-year data from the initial TAC trial will be published later this year. In addition, we are aware of one additional Level 2A study and two additional Level 2B studies that will be submitted for publications later this year. So, to summarize, our team has been executing well. We have been signing additional Tulsa Pro site agreements at an increased pace over 2020. We expect to install new Tulsa Pro systems at a rate of approximately four to six per quarter going into 2022. With that accelerating, once COVID is fully behind us, we are continuing to see broader Tulsa adoption both in terms of procedure volume and types of patients treated. Utilization data points to Tulsa becoming a mainstream treatment in the US, providing us with a large market opportunity, and we're progressing Tulsa Pro's reimbursement strategy by conducting additional studies to apply for a specific CPT code and ultimately a reimbursement determination. This ends our prepared remarks for today. With that, we're happy to take any questions you might have. Operator.
1: Thank you. As a reminder, if you would like to ask a question at this time, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. To withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Our first question comes from the line of Raul Sagrajas.
0: Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
5: Thank you very much, operator. Uh, Arun and Aaron, uh, thanks so much for taking my questions. Congratulations on um, strong results uh, today. Um, Thank you. I, I guess my, my first question is just sort of you know the details a little bit more detail in terms of the new sites that you were you were talking about. So you mentioned 14 installed, uh, 10 treating. Um, you know, we recognize that there are about nine sites uh, listed on the TELSA Pro uh, website. Um, you know, how how do how should we be thinking about uh, visibility on uh, the you know these sites that are being installed, as well as the ones that are coming online, and then also with the you know the total twenty-five that you expect uh, to come online through through you know, to be installed through the remainder of the year.
4: Yes, So, so you know, I think that. What we put on the Telsa pro procedure website uh, are really those sites where we have permission from the hospital or the medical center to be able to provide the the name uh, uh, in public domain uh, and so there are certain sites which we which we do not have permission yet so in some cases it can be a Uh, leading indicator because some sites would like to put their name out so they can start recruiting prior to even installation. And to be honest, in some sites, they have a pretty good start and they tend to sort of want to wait until they've treated a few patients before they go there. So I would suggest that we not look at that site as only as a leading indicator, uh, but as a site that where you know, full commercial activity is taking place at this point. Um, You know, I did mention a couple of new names when I listed the number of of leading hospitals that are either signed up or are using the technology. Uh, And I, to be honest, I think that it's a very impressive list at this early stage of our company. And I think what I can tell you is in the second half of this year, you will continue to see, and we will, you know, be announcing as these hospitals come on stream, uh, other big-name hospitals, big-name cancer centers. So, as you know, we sort of talked about those three channels. It's important for us to not just have only the leading hospitals, but these imaging center channels where we get off to a good start with the two uh, companies that we've, we've, you know, signed up with and with early adopters, and you will see additional early adopters also, and you will see more sites coming on stream with the imaging center companies. So I'm, to be honest, fairly, um, you know, I hate to use word excited all the time or anything. I almost never use it, but I'm pretty excited about the fact that we are really marching to the strategy that we put together. And I think you will continue to see, you know, four to six new sites every quarter, and that they will be, uh, you know, representing the full range of the three channels that we talk about.
5: Terrific. Thanks, Roon. That's, that's great clarity. Um, I guess my next question is, you know, this is the first time you've really been talking about really broad utility of uh, the device you'd initially talked about, of course, of course, the prostate cancer and then BPH and then salvage patients, but you really are talking about a much you know, broader workhorse type uh, scenario here. So with yeah. those numbers that you talked about, 60% whole, 28% partial, et cetera, et cetera, when, when should we yeah. expect to see some of the data coming out of this to, to illustrate everything that you were just talking about?
4: Yes. So as you know, you know we analyze uh, everything to confirm that, hey, whatever we are doing is actually producing the kinds of results that we anticipated. And if they're not, to be able to adjust ourselves to fit fit, you know, um, better, provide better execution. So to answer your first question directly, uh, you will see additional publications that will be coming out within the next six months, uh, which will include this broader variety of patient usage. Uh, you will also see that in addition to the CAPTAIN trial, we will announce additional smaller trials that will start focusing on these subset of patients because the data that we see, we're quite, quite pleased to see that we are not only treating the full variety of the patients, but the other part that we are seeing is that, you know, our patient population tends to be more on the larger prostate side, which are the more difficult patients to treat. So, you know, if we can treat the more difficult patients, certainly we'll be able to treat the average uh, uh, you know, diseased patient. And so I think not only that we, when we sort of analyze this data of the last 18 months, uh, we're feeling very comfortable that we can treat the full range of the cancer population and a pretty large subset of the BPH population, but we're also finding comfort in the sense that patients who tend to be more complicated, you know, the larger the prostate, the larger, the more complicated the procedure is. And in fact, if you do an analysis on larger prostates, you will find that the side effects become even more critical in those larger prostates, where we're delivering, in fact, quite phenomenal results with almost no side effects in larger prostates. That's really where the confidence is coming from. And you will absolutely see this in publications. And as we begin to unravel more and more of this data, we will in fact support additional specific trials to make sure that our community, urology community, has everything that they need to drive adoption.
5: Great. Thanks, Erin. And, and and if you wouldn't indulge just one last uh, question. So given the broadened utility and now that you have essentially ten treating sites and hopefully the, the additional four or the the additional four that are installed will be coming out very soon, can you maybe speak to utilization rates that you're seeing Uh, specifically, you know, given the breadth of, uh, breadth of applications?
4: Of the applications. yes. So, yeah, good question because we, I didn't have that in the prepared remarks. But, uh, you know, number one, certainly in the early adopters, we're seeing that the run rate, you know, we've talked historically about 60. We originally thought it would be 40, but in reality, it was pretty good. I can tell you that that number of 60 is increasing in those sites. So I think six months from now I anticipate that I'll be able to give you a number that will be higher runway than sixty in those sites. Uh on in the teaching hospitals, you know, one of the things I've talked about stay in the guidelines that they provide that that, that are sort of um, agreed upon in the urology department and they typically will not deviate from those guidelines. And so for the Tulsa installs, they have sort of developed an initial criteria of what type of patients they will be treating uh, in, um, you know, uh, in the beginning, but I can already tell you that they are starting to broaden those, in fact. And so I think that the rate with which, you know, as you as, as we've talked about before, in the teaching hospitals, we thought the first year will be sort of in the range of 30 30-ish and maybe it'll go to 40, 50 in the second year. At this point, I would anticipate that we will grow at a little bit better, faster pace, even in the teaching hospitals. And a couple of the teaching hospitals, as an example, are already doing three three procedures in one day. And as as you know, longer term, our goal is to be at four procedures per day. But within the first six months, we're starting to see that at least a couple of the teaching hospitals are already at three procedures per day also. So generally, you know, I think that, again, we want to be cautious. We don't want to overshoot or anything. But I would say generally speaking, um, the utilization story is is certainly continuing to be, uh, uh, you know, better or, or at least as good as we anticipated. And I think it is reflecting in the fact that you know, between Q1 and Q2, you saw a certain, you know, pretty good increase in the recurring revenue dollars.
5: Great. Thank you so much, and congratulations on the quarter. Uh, I'll get back in
1: the
4: queue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yalu.
1: Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Josh Jennings with Cowan. Your line is open. Please go ahead.
6: Sorry about that. I was on mute. Um... This is actually Neil, on for Josh. Uh, thanks for taking the questions.
4: Good afternoon, Neil. Um,
6: how are you? And congratulations on the quarter. Um, you, you you talked a little bit about this, the CPT reimbursement path. Um, can you maybe just provide a little more detail in terms of, you know, what the process looks like with those societies you're talking about?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, part of the reason that it's an important topic is that, you know, one of the things that we want to convey is that you know we are off to a pretty good start from our perspective, um, um, in the with the current situation that we have. But getting that CPT one is a, remains a key key priority for us. So with the way the process has been working, that we've had multiple meetings with both the American Neurological Association and with the Uh, RSNA, which is the Radiology uh, Association, uh, that is a sister organization. And um, we're meeting with the, uh, the American Neurological Meeting is coming up. The annual meeting is coming up in September in Las Vegas this year. We have another meeting planned with them. And so what we're doing is we're keeping them fully abreast of the progress that we're making, the clinical data that is coming out. And we're finding that both of these societies are generally quite positive in the way we are presenting the information, the clinical data publications that are, that they look, that, what they look like. And so at least our interpretation is that both of these societies are likely to be supportive as we prepare the applications in the first half of 2022. And that is in terms of the process a really important goal because once the societies support the adoption of a new technology, they, you know, ultimately the decision comes from the um, AMA, the American Medical Association, and that um, uh, if, if, you know, they look for the support from these societies. So obviously I cannot guarantee that we have it, but certainly based upon our current uh, dialogue, it looks positive, but the process would be that we would then work with the societies. They will either provide a support letter or they may, in fact, co-sponsor. We'll see how that goes. Typically, societies provide support letters. And with that, we would be in a position to file for the June meeting of AMA. If that, that decision then will come in the fourth quarter of 2022. And once we know what that decision is, if it is positive, then sent over to the REC committees to determine the RVUs and, and so on. And that process typically takes about a year. And so the effective codes, if they are, are assigned, will be become effective for treatment by January uh, uh, 2024. So 2023, well, they'll do the analysis. So from today, it's about a two and a half year process.
6: Great. Great. Thanks for that detail. Just uh, one follow-up, just in terms of the, you know, your visibility into the the sales funnel for the, you know, the imaging center side. Any updates there in terms of, you know, your partnerships with with Acumen and RedNet? Yeah.
4: You know, um, I think, as I've said in the last quarter, you know, overall, our pipeline continues to be strong. And the fact that some of the leading hospitals are now treating and giving us good feedback. Um, you know, I think that, as you know, you know, urologists would like to talk to their, uh, you know, colleague. And I think that dialogue is beginning to sort of take place, even though our install base, as you know, is still relatively small. But that dialogue is starting to take place. And, and we're starting to see more and more, you know, urologists, uh, wanting to become what we call authorized users, meaning they want to get trained and be able to start using the technology in existing sites whenever it's possible, even if they have to travel a little bit in the early days so that they can get first-hand experience and then be able to then, uh, work with their own hospital system to be able to adopt the, the technology. So overall, I would say certainly the pipeline is, is better our sales methodology is stronger today than it was, you know, six months ago even. And um, I think that you will you will see that in the imaging center channel that, you know, more than one urologist will start using it, so that the old con- the original concept that we will over the long term be able to drive, you know, adoption. Uh, without necessarily increasing uh, the number of sites, I think that you will start to see in the next six months will start to come become reality. And I also think that a number of early adopters who have been using other specialized technologies, you will begin to see that they will start to gravitate more towards using Tulsa as compared to, you know, other specialized technologies. So, I know, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a bit of a more general response here, but that's sort of how we look at the landscape.
6: Oh, that's that's helpful. Um, I'll jump back in the queue. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Anthony Patron with Jeffries. Your line is open. Please go ahead.
7: Oh, great. Thanks. And and. Arun, uh, glad to hear that that everything is going well with your health and 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 good luck and and glad to hear all went well with the procedure a few weeks ago.
4: Thank you. Thank uh, you.
7: Question on, on our end would would just be when you look at uh, a total of fourteen Tulsa's installed, uh, a little bit uh, you know at, at the midpoint of the year, eleven more to go in the back end. How should we think about installations? Between three Q and four Q, I would assume there would be more heavy weighted toward toward four Q, and and as you th- you know sort of look at the the, the funnel, uh, eight to nine contracts you mentioned last quarter, uh, you know that could represent sort of even a multiple of of units over a multi year period, you know how do you how should we think about how that funnel will evolve into the second half of the year, and then I'll have one follow up.
4: Sure. Uh, and so these are very good questions. Um, so I think in terms of, you know, the, one of the goals we've talked about is can we get to the 25? And, you know, our team has pretty detailed plans in place to achieve that goal. And it certainly is not limited by the contracts that we need to do. We have enough on hand to be able to achieve that, that goal. Uh, and we have six more months to go. So, I, but I think there's one point that I would like to make um, because it's an important point. We, we see a, a you know big inca- impact of COVID is behind us in terms of driving utilization of sites that are operational. But we do see still a little bit of an impact of COVID in driving the new install base. And to give you just a specific example, you know, one of our MR vendors has is back order on some of the routers. And we need the router to be able to install the site with Tausa. And so it has caused about a six week delay for us before we can actually install the site. And so we are seeing a little bit of of that supply-related delays, and even in hospitals, a little bit of, you know, slowness or sluggishness in getting the labor content in, in place to be able to do the, the uh, appropriate modifications. And so that is one of the reasons why I think 25 is still uh, the right, you know, reasonable goal to be, uh, even though in terms of the contracts, I think we will have, you know, uh, more, many more than that by end of this year. To answer your question in terms of capability, so the way we're looking at it is that for the, the next two quarters at least, I think four to six installs per quarter is still a reasonable place to be, but then I think in 2022, we are looking to add our, into our resources to be able to increase that capacity, perhaps to you know seven or eight per quarter, and then ultimately you know, maybe in the range of 10 per quarter. And I apologize, I cannot give you specific timings just yet. But that's the plan, is that we do think that there is demand. we are seeing that even with the current, uh, you know, C-code and patient pay, uh, there is a robust, you know, patient population who is interested in the procedure. So that I do think that we will be increasing that capacity in 2022.
7: That's helpful. And then... Two quick follow-ups, and I, I may have missed this in between calls, but the TAC2 extension study enrollment, it looks like you, you may have completed enrollment, just wondering if if we should still expect a publication by year end. And then anything of note on the GE collaboration, you know, how should we expect that collaboration to sort of play out over the next couple yeah. of years? Thanks again.
4: Yeah, yeah. Great questions, Anthony. So the TAC2 trial, has been recruiting really well. The only reason we have not closed it is because there are a couple of sites like Yale that we felt would be good to include them into the tech too. So they are now recruiting as well. And so this is why, you know, we're saying we'll more than likely close the recruitment in Q4 as compared to originally we thought we would be able to do it a little bit earlier than that. Um, but to your question with respect to the publication, uh, a key publication will be coming out at the AUA in September, where they will the the uh, uh, independent investigators will be presenting three year data for for TACT, um, and so that you know three year is considered another milestone, and you know again the focus will be on. On uh, you know uh, those side effects and progression-free survival, and so those are the three things that we were looking for in the in the three-year data um, that will be coming out. And then the the captain trial, which is sort of the level one trial, is actually also moving very well. We most of the sites are already identified. The IRBs are all uh, generally in good place. And so we feel pretty confident we will be recruiting in Q4 for the CAPTAIN trial as well.
7: Thanks again.
1: Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Frank Tarkin with Lake Street Cap Markets. Your line is open. Please go ahead.
8: Thank you, operator Arun Aaron. Congrats on the progress in the quarter. A couple from me. I'll start with um, first thinking about the mix of procedures in the quarter. Do you, by chance on hand, have the mix of patients that were purely cash pay versus those who had utilized the C code uh, successfully and whether or not those were partial reimbursement cases yeah. or full reimbursement cases, just trying to get a feel for
4: the procedures yeah. that happened no, in the it's, quarter? It's, it's absolutely. It's a great question. And, and to be honest, we are, you know, trying to figure out what that ratio is also, and and as you can imagine, it's a very difficult ratio to to get handle on because we, you know, for HIPAA reasons, we don't have access in every case. Uh, having said that, I would say, as a as my you know as as our kind of a educated guess, is it's probably in the range of sixty to sixty-five percent cash pay. And 30 to 40 percent, perhaps, or the rest of it, perhaps in the uh, C code category. Um, we, what what is interesting is, uh, we do continue to see patients are willing to travel. We do continue to see that hosp- the the number of uh, sites that are saying, look, we have enough of population of cash pay. We don't need to bother with C code, which we are trying to change in fact, a little bit. Um, and we are also seeing, so we do see the aggregate data, and we are seeing that when they do apply for the C code or even private insurance where they might use unlisted codes, that generally everybody is getting paid. So one of our uh, plans, in fact, is to really uh, uh Double up on our strategy to really educate particularly the hospital systems on the C code and really encourage them to use it more often in fact, but at the moment you know that doesn't seem to be that that doesn't seem to be the bottleneck
8: here. Got it, okay, that makes sense. thinking about the mix of low to more severe grade um, prostate cancer understanding that this is a lot in the in the early days, but I was hoping you could just kind of talk to trends, use case pattern trends you are seeing from when they start okay. to once they're a little bit more established. Are you seeing them start in the lower grade and then move into some of the, the higher grade cases, or is it vice versa? Just how is that trending in the limited data you have to date?
4: Yeah, yeah. No, very good question. Um, so we sort of encourage them, to start with their sweet spot. And, you know, for example, Valspan started with nothing but salvage cases because that was their biggest unmet need. And now they're moving on to sort of intermediate risk. And then they, that, and so I think every site, we sort of customize the plan based upon their patient population and what they see as the most uh, compelling unmet need. Uh, University of Texas, as an example, started with uh, they wanted to do more focal therapy cases. What we are seeing from this data analysis that we did in this quarter is that they start wherever they start, but they're starting to gravitate more towards whole gland therapy, which we're really pleased to see, and that they're starting to recognize that they can literally dial in. I call it dialing because I see it happen pixel by pixel to amazing accuracy of one to one and a half millimeters. Where they can literally dial in what to ablate and where not to ablate. And so when you know just to answer your question regarding, for example, the higher risk, which you know, we were not necessarily anticipating that we'll go that there this early, is when there there's we've seen cases where there's, you know, um, um, external involvement. So there might be some some involvement beyond the capsule of the prostate, and they're able to sort of incorporate that into the, the boundaries and be able to ablate. And that ability to be able to really define that boundary is why, at least we believe, is why we're starting to see that in certain cases, they are uh, going after some of the higher risk patients. And I think that the patient demand, even in those cases, really is, hey, gee, can you save my nerve bundle? So, you know, we've seen examples where on one side the nerve bundles are involved in the cancer and they are going to ablate it. The other side of the prostate, they will save the nerve bundle to make sure that the patient can still have erectile function. And so that flexibility, I believe, is what's driving this, this change. And we've seen quite a few cases now where they can really really customize that treatment to be able to make sure that the clinical you know procedure from the cancer uh, outcome perspective is completely intact but at the same time they're able to save these you know vital uh, functions by you know dialing it in the right places um, so again i agree with you that it is a little bit early um, but we're certainly encouraged and as i said before I think you will start to see some more attention that we would pay in towards that oh you know, over the next twelve months.
8: Got it. Okay. I'll cut it off there. Thanks for answering my questions. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Ben Haynor with Alliance Global Partners. Your line is open. Please go ahead.
9: Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thanks for taking the questions. Um, first off, for I me, mean, is I guess more of a kind of housekeeping one, uh, on the capital revenue, you know, what was that comprised of? I mean, is that Tulsa Pros in Europe? Is that Leave? And then, um, you, you know, just from thinking about the capital pipeline, what does that look like the remainder of the year?
4: Yeah. Um, Aaron, you're on the call. Did you want to take this one? Sure.
3: So Ben, we don't provide guidance by policy at this point because our revenue is not predictable enough. And as such, we don't provide the outlook for the remainder of the year on capital sales uh, outside anywhere. Um, And to date, we have not provided a breakdown of Sonali versus Tulsa. Again, when it gets predictable, we'll do that. At this point, the numbers are too small to be predictable so we don't, we, you know, we don't want to get people chasing rabbit, down rabbit holes. So we haven't been doing that, and we're not ready to start. Okay, I
9: understand. And, and then
3: the, the progress that
9: you've made, and uh, you know, obviously, the, there's publications out there, there's uh, data out there, and more to come. But what have you seen from some of the- Treatment modalities that are out there. I mean, what's been the reaction from, you know, the folks that are doing cryo ablations or, you know, other types of hyphu or, or things like that to Tulsa Pro? To so, Tulsa Pro? Sure.
4: Yeah. Um, so uh, I think, uh, well, let's start with cryo. Uh, cryo typically is used in salvage patients, and we have seen um, that. Those who have actually used Tulsa for salvage patients are are generally quite pleased with that, and so you know I think we we're certainly encouraged that I think that it's a it's a very niche area um, uh, you know relatively small volumes, but I do think that um, urologists are gravitating uh, towards uh, the Tulsa procedure for salvage um and the the big difference i think here is the control right you can you can literally um, design the whole the, the those prostates tend to be very um irregular in shape and quite unique for each patient because they've been radiated and they behave uh uniquely for each patient so mm-hmm the fact that we can draw pretty intricate boundaries and still maintain that precision is is one of the things that's driving them. Um, and I think that um, to, I guess to, to go to the next one, the HIFU, um, you know, we are seeing, um, you know, uh, more dialogue going on with HIFU. You know, I understand the companies that are, uh, providing HIFU have have, um, been marketing quite aggressively. Um, You know, I think in terms of of our technology versus Mm -hmm. any other technology, and I think, to me, cryo, HIFU, and these technologies have been out there for, you know, seven to ten years, in fact. Mm -hmm. And what, at least historically, what we've seen is, you know, the The types of prostates that they're treating are in the range of maybe 30 cc's or less, and the clinical data has to be is generally in that in that smaller prostate space. Because for larger prostates, because of that distance from the trans um, um, uh, rectal distance you have to travel, you have certain limitations, and um, and that you you tend to to um, May, you may need a, a, a turf prior to that, which sort of defeats the purpose a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the the other difference is that, you know, the speed with which we can do whole gland uh, is, is you know, about three to four times faster in, mm-hmm. because we're right in the center of the prostate. We blast the ultrasound and, and we can, you know, rotate that Uh, that uh, catheter, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, So I think when you're talking about whole gland, when you're talking about larger prostates, I think that Telsa is inherently, you know, uh, a technology that I think is is superior to to, to a number of these niche technologies. Now, you know, I, I think it's a marketplace. I think that technology has evolved and we'll see how it goes. But at least historically, I would say, you know, the ability to treat whole gland, large prostates, single procedure, high speed, gentle heating in the sense that we're not boiling or charring the tissue, which means basically no virtually no pain and literally be able to work the same afternoon if you're having the procedure in the morning. You know, I think there are several functional benefits and clinical benefits to Tulsa. and the fact that you can treat the full range, I just think that the urologists would like to have a technology that has the versatility to be able to, you know, treat more of those patients because they don't want to learn a tool that they will use, you know, once a month or twice a month. They want to have a tool that they can use routinely.
9: That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thanks for the the call there, and then. You know, just kind of thinking about it from the the imaging center standpoint. You know, a lot of these guys are used to doing, you know, just a ton of ton of imaging studies at you know relatively low margins. Um, you know, do do they tend to grasp grasp the economics fairly? Well? Tulsa Pro yeah. procedures and and uh, you know, how how does that look? I mean, do you need to kind of lead the horse to water? Is that uh, something that uh, They get it immediately.
4: Ben, that's a great question, actually, because you're right. It is a paradigm shift for the imaging center companies, but their mindset historically has been, you know, volume. Right? They they want to have more. They have substantial investment in the ground. These MRIs cost, you know, millions of dollars and so on. And, and so volume is really, really important to them. And so, you know, their margins are thin and volume is how they make their money historically. And so when we, you know, we talk about this kind of explicitly now is that if you are doing a diagnostic MR, typically will take about 30 to 40 minutes to do it. And Typical reimbursement nationally is under $500 now for the diagnostic MR. So if you do 10 patients, um, you make $5,000 uh, in 10 patients. Uh, if two of those patients tend to also get a TELSA treatment where they can charge you know, $25,000 per patient, now you're going from 10 patients, $5,000 to 10 patients $60,000. Think about that. It is an amazing paradigm shift.
9: Yeah.
4: Right? <clears throat> amazing revenue story. Now, they have to, you know, invest in uh, putting anesthesia. They have to really change their mindset from, you know, high volume to high quality and specialized and really working with urologists for, for, you know, uh, 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 treatment application and then they can bring that patient back for long-term follow-up. So they sort of start to really connect with that patient. So I think the long-term proposition for imaging center is quite amazing. And, yes, the I mean, that's one of the reasons why the top two imaging center companies are working with us. And I believe they understand that proposition. You know, they also we also think it's not going to happen in one day. But, yes, I think that... From a financial point of view, is a very strong proposition.
9: So it kind of changes everything from a you know kind of a transactional mindset to more of a relationship mindset.
4: Absolutely, that's exactly right. Exactly. Okay. Right. And
9: and then you know just lastly for me you know you mentioned that you recently underwent a procedure and you know obviously not to get to, too personal but uh, you know what was your uh, experience as a patient uh, for of Tulsa Pro?
4: So, Ben, I'm I'm happy to talk about it, and I can get pretty emotional about it, too. But there are a couple of things I would say that are really interesting that I went through in my mind. So, you know, first of all, I really, really had heard about this, that patients were saying there's no pain and so on, and that they would go home the next day and have dinner or work in the afternoon. I mean, it literally happened that way. When I woke up, there really was no pain and really woke up within five minutes after I woke up from anesthesia. I was in the car. Ten minutes later, we were in, in, the, in the hotel room and uh, it really was amazing. And, you know, I did have a, a UTI, which, is, which happens to, you know, less than 10% of the patients. But, you know, it really didn't bother me, to be honest. It really has not bothered me at all. Uh, Because the mindset that I went through is really what has really uh, given me a lot more conviction about Tulsa. And the mindset really is, you know, today the paradigm is, you know, delay the procedure because the side effects are going to really get you and you don't want those side effects. But, you know, there's another side of that story, and that is if you can avoid those side effects, you almost want to get it done sooner than later. Because what was going through my mind was, you know, if I wait another five years, well, you know, I'm going to be aging, unfortunately, just like everybody else. And based upon history, I could be in a more, uh, you know, some morbidity condition, maybe have some heart condition, maybe diabetes, sort of, these are progressive conditions that people, when they age, that happen. So to me, one of the things that really resonated was, My God, I know that I would not have those side effects. Why would I wait? So that paradigm shift from waiting until I absolutely need it to, oh, my God, let me just get it done sooner than later, that's the paradigm shift that I'm really excited about.
9: And there's probably a benefit there. Overall, just younger patients, better outcomes that will look and that will show up in yeah. studies. It will be good for you guys.
10: Exactly. Yes.
9: <laughs> well, great. That's all I had. Thanks for, thanks for the color, you know, b- both business and personal-wise. <laughs>
4: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of John Hickey, Private Investor. Your line is open. Please go ahead. Hi.
10: Hi. Uh... Thanks. I viewed your video the other week. It's fantastic. Uh, I'm a physician, and I was an early investor, so I'm well aware of how the system works. Um, I've been corresponding with some of my colleagues down in South Texas, and they are going nuts, calling each other's hospitals, looking for ICU beds. And I reflect that with an aging population ICU beds were already getting premium before COVID hit. So uh, rather than ask about the system and the installation, I want to ask about the complication rate because that's going to be another big selling point to any hospital administrator. So we know that radical prostatectomy and robotic prostatectomy uh, are highly operator-dependent and the larger the center they're performed at the lower the complication rate. I wonder if you know ICU admission rate and uh, number of uh, admission days that occur when there is a complication with um, your system as opposed to the other systems, or is that something Captain hopes to look at in more depth?
4: Sure. John, thank you. Also, thank you for the color. I can tell you that the ICU days post Tulsa are incredibly minor, if any, particularly in the commercial settings. We have just not heard that. Um, we have heard of, you know, the, the range of patients who end up with a UTI is somewhere between uh, 4% to maximum of 10%. And those patients do not need to be admitted. It's basically, you know, identifying which, you know, which bacteria uh, has been, you know, ha- has infected the patient and maybe really customizing which antibiotic would work. And typically they go away within, you know, five to 10 days. So we've not seen, you know, Patients needing to go back to the hospital Um, during the TAC trial, which was the original trial, we did have uh, I would say four percent of the patients where we needed uh, some uh, care post-treatment. But in commercial setting, we're just not seeing that. So I I think, and and I I think your other point is really also quite important to recognize that this you know as you said procedures that are prevalent today are dependent, are quite dependent on the, uh, the, the physician. And there is sufficient data even in robotics that that physicians who have done more than 1000 cases tend to have better outcomes than those who have done less. Versus here, you know, the the surgical planning is really the key part. Once the surgical planning is done, it is an autonomous robot. So and you're actually watching the, the, it it performed during you know during the 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 um, ablation process, and one of the things that a technology that we introduced uh, about a year ago or a little over a year ago is um, the ability to change the um, boundaries, the design of the treatment on the fly. So when there's edema or some swelling of the prostate because of the the heat coming in they are able to literally uh, uh, erase the boundaries and on the fly change. Uh, so that allows them to really have that precision uh, and, and reduce the impact of, you know, um, newness in this case. Uh, and, you know, those who know me well enough know that we will continue to come out with innovations. And I think part of our goal is to continue to make it so that it that variability from physician to physician will reduce, if any, you know, over time. So I really appreciate your question, but I think that uh, to your point, you know, I think the ICU, you're absolutely right. They are premium, and I don't. I think we will have an impact uh, on that, and I also think that over the long haul, uh, we will continue to be a much more reproducible and predictable treatment.
1: Okay, thanks. Thank you, John. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Scott McNaught with Paradigm Capital. Your line is open. Please go ahead.
11: Hi, uh, Rune and Aaron, uh, thanks again for taking the call and congrats on the quarter. Um, I just wanted to quickly touch on the, the process from kind of signing an agreement to installation to operation um, and kind of how you're seeing that t- the kind of the timing between those um, processes. Um, you know, change and evolve um, as you you know get more uh, these contracts signed and get more of these installations in, and hopefully as the COVID impact is kind of um, you know potentially lessening or going away, um, and how you see that moving forward.
4: Yeah, Scott, um, very good question, and we think about that every day. Uh, so when we started, um, you know. Uh, In fact, I remember talking about it in Q1 last year uh, of 2020. You know, our anticipation has been that uh, from the time we have the contract to the first patient treated, uh, our expectation was about 90 days. And that our uh, plan, based upon our uh, programs that we were running, that we felt that we could reduce that to about 60 days. Uh, At the moment it is actually running closer to four months. Um, And it is related to various factors and they're all very minor things. And some of them, if not all of them, are that transitory things that are sort of pop up because of you know, COVID. There's some bottleneck that shows up that normally you would not even think about. So at the moment, it is running a little bit higher than what we anticipated and we will overcome that. And our team is, getting pretty adept at doing that. But I think over the long haul, I think the original expectation that we will be able to reduce it to you know somewhere between sixty to ninety days, you know, perhaps in twenty twenty two is is still a very reasonable reasonable expectation.
11: Definitely. No, that's that's great. And then just to kind of clarify with the you're know, mentioning twenty five um, by the end of the year, do you see that as twenty five installations or twenty 25- five operational um, installations, like
4: operational sites? Um, you know, I think that I framed it as installation, but to be honest, that, you know, once we are installed, the the, the time from the, we, for the, from the installation to treating the first patient is really, uh, you know, almost never more than a couple of weeks. So we're, you know, we're probably within the range of the margin of error here on that point. Got it.
11: Got it. So the, most of that four months is yeah. the, the process from contract to installation, once installation's in, it's a quick turnaround to yeah. the first patient.
4: Got it. Yeah. I mean, usually the, the physicians seem to be, you know, they typically are pretty interested because obviously they've invested the time. And so they typically, once they know all the dates and so on and they're firm on when the system would be ready, you know, about three weeks prior to that, they're already sort of starting to screen the patient Uh, and, and, you know, usually uh, assign a date of the first patient treated. And that date actually works really well because it focuses the hospital and focuses our team to say that's the date the first patient is going to be treated. And we really work backwards from that date at that point.
11: Perfect. No, that's that's wonderful. And then quickly, I mean, maybe looking a bit into a crystal ball, but, um in terms of kind of the rise of of the delta variant and especially kind of in the south um texas and florida um are you seeing that impact any procedure kind of the current procedure volumes like july august um or are things kind of tugging along as they were in in q2 when the the numbers were relatively low
4: yeah it's you you're right scott it's a bit of a crystal ball and florida texas certainly um, you know I, I read this morning in the journal that um, Florida has more patients at the moment in ICUs and hospitals than ever even in the from the beginning of the of the um, of the uh, epidemic so so far we have not seen any major impact but it's certainly one of the reasons why we are you know continuing to be cautious uh, because it is unpredictable uh, You know, we do see a number of patients who are willing to travel, so hopefully the impact would not be be big even if it is, you know, patients coming to Florida. Uh, And and we are, you know, we're opening sites in, uh, you know, other parts of the country. So if we do see one region being, you know, down the curve, I think there will be some ability to, uh, you know, uh, uh, transfer the patients to other areas as well. So we are certainly very uh, diligent in this. Our sales team is really, really uh, pretty, it's starting to become really good at at managing that situation actually.
3: And we have a couple factors working in our benefit is the demographics so far have shown that men of the age of prostate disease tend to be vaccinated and that uh, the states where we operate Uh, The most, like Texas and Florida, uh, do not seem like they have governments intended on shutting down the states again, for good or bad. Yeah,
11: definitely. No, uh, that's that's all for me, thanks again, guys, and uh, congrats.
1: Thank you. Thank
10: you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And I'm showing no further questions at this time, and I would like to turn the conference back over to Dr. Minawat for any further remarks.
4: Thank you so much, and um, thank you for the questions. Um, You know, our company continues to evolve, and uh, we are continuing to gain strength from what we see, and I look forward to really, uh, you know, presenting to you in Q3. Thank you. Have a great evening. This
1: concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.